Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. The Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to a very special Bizzlecast. Just a few days before Star Wars The Last Jedi, I'm here to do the latest entry in my shooting Star Wars series. Today I'm going to be do something, doing something quite a bit different um, because I promised that I would not do any sort of spoilers or speculative podcasts at this point leading up to the movie. It's almost here and I'll see it a million times and then we can do all sorts of spoilers podcast, so I don't really want to talk about the new movie other than I am excited for it. Today we're going to be talking about Star Wars canon, what it means to be Star Wars canon, uh, what you know the uh, official versus unofficial literature is, if that even exists, but even more so, we're going to talk about the fact that Star Wars is setting up um, a much different scenario possibly going on into the future than we thought. And most of all, the fact that there's been so much great stuff in the books and the comic books. So here is uh, today, I have a canon expert and uh, online friend of mine and podcast host, Jedi Geek Girl from the iRebel podcast. It's a Star Wars Destiny podcast. She had me on a couple weeks ago. It was an absolute delight. Jedi Geek Girl, I want to welcome you to the show. Please say hi to the audience and tell us a little bit about your podcast. Wow, that was such a fantastic entrance. I am so humbled. I am doing fantastic, Bizzle. Thank you so much for having me on. I am so excited to talk about canon. Like you mentioned, I'm really into canon. But despite that, what I do in my podcast is I'm a host of a Star Wars Destiny podcast where I talk about the game with rotating guests varying from casual topics to your more hardcore topics. It is a one-woman podcast, but I love doing it, and I'm a newer podcast, but I love doing it, and thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you again, and if we have some time at the end, we can do a little catch-up on the Star Wars Destiny scene, because there's still all sorts of regional competitions and things happening, as we discussed a few weeks ago, as you've been discussing regularly on your podcast and with the whole online community of of content providers. Really, really a great game, and Star Wars, both of things which I love. So today's topic is kind of wide-ranging, because the notion of canon uh, in general in life is, you know, if you're a scholar of religion or philosophy or that sort of thing, you might know what we're talking about. So we're going to talk about what canon is when it relates to Star Wars, but I wanted to start this Jedi Geek Girl on something that uh, the listeners can relate to. Everyone knows about Star Wars Battlefront 2, the video game which came out fairly recently um, and has been causing lots of controversy because of multiplayer stuff, which I've talked about in my other video game podcast, so we're not going to rehash here. It did have a kind of cool single-player campaign. I will say, guys, right now, the only types of spoilers in this entire podcast is that we are going to be discussing a couple things that happen at the very beginning, like the first hour of Star Wars Battlefront. Um, and so if you played none of the game and you want to don't know, want to know anything, go play the first hour or so, because that's the only thing we'll be talking about that maybe you haven't come across, because that is what kind of catalyzed what I wanted to talk about today with, with Jedi Geek Girl. So before I bring up that thing, Jedi Geek Girl, um, I believe you have played Battlefront uh, 2, and, and what are your impressions of the game? I know you're not a giant gamer. It was a beautiful game. I was a little disappointed in the story, but I'm not going to get beyond that. But there's more stories coming, so I'm excited. I love Idino Verso, 
I can't really pronounce her name. I love the league protagonist. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of her. And if you read Infernal Squadron, it just adds so much layer to that. But back to the game, because I'm not so much of a gamer, I can't really sit here and tell you I like this aspect. I really like this aspect. It was really fun. It was too short, but I thought it was a pretty good outing for the first quote-unquote canon output from EA. Absolutely. And a question I'd love to talk about later is one that you and I briefly talked about on your podcast, where we talked about Jin Erso and Rogue One and how much the literature around Rogue One enhanced the experience and sort of this model that Star Wars is pioneering. And again, here with the Inferno Squad uh, book by Christy Golden, which seems like people like in general. Christy Golden's a pretty popular writer of this sort of stuff. Iden Versio is an awesome lead character. So, guys, I actually prepared a little bit of a dramatic reading. Um, to, uh, to about two minutes long, I'm going to play in a sec, of uh, what Emperor Palpatine's true plan uh, was or may have been that we didn't know about after Return of the Jedi. But to lead into that... Um, and Jedi Geek Girl, as we've talked off mic, you're probably gonna have to correct me at least a few times during this podcast because this canon stuff is such a big topic. So always feel free to jump in. But it, basically, in Battlefront, you start by playing Iden Versio, who is a, you know, super badass professional special forces agent for the Emperor. Ta- uh, in, in, in not in, the book takes place earlier, but in the game, it takes place right before the Battle of Endor. You have an escape mission, and then you end up on Endor, and she's on Endor when the Death Star explodes. And so immediately the Empire goes into emergency mode. We find out that her dad is an admiral. They launch something called Operation Cinder, which he spins to her as just, we're going to still finish off the rebellion even without the Emperor. But it turns out that the Emperor wanted to destroy most of his own empire should he die prematurely. What is Operation Cinder, you say? Well, I'm going to launch this clip and then we're going to get into discussion about this whole craziness. So, here we go. The contingency was a plan devised by Emperor Sheev Palpatine to ensure that the Galactic Empire would not outlive him. The task of putting the contingency into effect was given to Gallius Rex, the Emperor's protege. Ultimately, the plan was to destroy the planet Jakku, along with the remnants of the Empire and its adversaries, who would be lord at the Battle of Jakku. In the aftermath of the Emperor's death at the Battle of Endor, Rax initiated the contingency per Operation Cinder by scouring several worlds, including Naboo and Vardos. He also arranged for the deaths of several Imperial military commanders and allowed the opposing New Republic, the government established by the Alliance to restore the Republic to win a succession of victories against the Empire. In secret, Rex intended to create a new Empire in the unknown regions of the galaxy with the aid of a select group of worthy Imperial loyalists. As the self-appointed counselor to the Empire, Rex gathered the remnants of the Empire to Jakku where he intended to destroy both Imperial and Republic forces in accordance with with the contingency. However, he was prevented from fulfilling the final stage of the plan by Grand Admiral Ray Sloan, who fatally shot Rax during the Battle of Jakku. The mortally wounded Rax urged Sloan to flee to the Unknown Regions and regroup with the others, telling her that she now served the contingency.
agency in his place. This movement eventually gave rise to the First Order. Alright, so, Jedi Geek Girl, here's the first big question or set of questions. So, when I, when I was playing Battlefront 2 and came across this, Operation Cinder seemed totally crazy, but it, I, it reminded me that I had heard of it before. And then I remembered that the Aftermath books, which full disclosure, I have read some but not all of the three books, but know the, know the lore fairly well, especially in the third book, remember what Operation Cinder was, which was this absolutely, seemingly irrationally crazy idea, even for the Emperor. Um, and I'm like, even for the Empire, this seems insane that they would destroy themselves. So as a lead into talking about canon, um, and you can talk in the beginning about, you know, what canon means now in the Star Wars universe. But when, when did you come across uh, this sort of notion um, about Operation Cinder and the Emperor's contingency plan and the observatories and, and all of these things in sort of the last few years? And, um, yeah, well, let's just start there. When did you start coming across this? Because to most people, they probably seem like pretty bonkers, especially if they're not pr- uh, familiar with the source material. The first time I was exposed to Operation Cinder was actually in the Shattered Empire comic. That is the first time I saw it, and that was the first time that it was mentioned. It was briefly touched upon because in that period of time, there was not a lot going on post-Return of the Jedi. So it seems like, okay, this is what's going on, but we didn't really understand it. It wasn't until the Aftermath book that we really understood it and it wasn't until Battlefront that we saw more of the actual Operation Cylinder effect itself. But it's actually really brilliant of a plan and it so fits Palpatine more than you think. So, Yeah, I mean, it, it was so bonkers that I went to research it on Wikipedia and elsewhere and made sure to go through all the sources. I, I went back and, and thumbed through some of my Aftermath books. I got the Shattered Empire comics on my iPad from Comixology immediately and couldn't believe, you know, that the, um, the, the red sort of Palpatine robots that we see, the, the uh, Sentinels in Battlefront, that it was all set up like years ago. And people, just so you know, um, you know, we're, we're not going to dumb this down too much, but we're also not going to assume that you've read much or any of the books and you might just be fans of the movie. So consider this sort of a math, like a masterclass level 201 as opposed to 101. We're going to dive into it, but. Aftermath was the first place that this was really explored in an extensive and, and non-visual space outside of, of Shattered Empire, right? Now, um, Jedi Geek Girl, so this is the perfect place before we get into the nuts and bolts of Operation Cinder, which again is the Emperor ordering his own people to destroy his own people. And we'll get back to why it's more complicated and more brilliant than you think. So, briefly explain what the notion of canon is in Star Wars today. And then I want to feed into the Aftermath books in the sense that they were some of the first books from the new canon. There was a lot of controversy around them for different reasons. Um, and I believe it was the only trilogy of adult books that's been written in the new canon. So what is canon in Star Wars today? Jedi Geek Girl, go. To understand canon, we must understand what the word canon means. Canon is basically a collection of authorized stories told by or with or authorized by the 
an author or an authoritarian figure. Like you have previously mentioned, you study religion. I studied about a year of it when I was in college. But if we look at canon and the authorized figure, it would be Lucasfilm. So it's basically any story that Lucasfilm authorized or okay as canon. That is what is considered canon. The best, another analogy I can make is basically uh, uh, J.R. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, I believe. J.K. Rowling with Harry Potter. Since she is the author and creator of it, she determines what the story of her characters and book is. If somebody creates a theater or a short play, it's not canon unless she says it is. Uh, basically, Marvel is doing this with their comics and TV. Like, their comic story is their canon, even though they make the movies it's not really canon. So as it relates to canon for Star Wars, it's basically everything that was released after A New Dawn in late 2014. Everything since then, outside of a couple of things, are canon and are official story. So if you want a larger scope of the story, anything past that date is part of the larger Star Wars current canon. Okay. First of all, excellent definition of the wider sense of canon. Really quickly, guys, I don't want to give a full religion episode. Jenna Geek Girl, it's hilarious because you started with my early episodes, and now you're dealing with philosophy topics again, so I apologize for that. (laughs) What can I say? You stimulated my intellectual (laughs) side. Even though I might not be able to understand any of it, I love being stimulated intellectually. So, So, canon comes from... The uh, initially from the Jewish Bible, which was that when they were assembling what we now know as the Old Testament or the Torah, the priests and scholars 2,000 or so years ago had to decide which books were canonical, meaning we are saying this officially happened and is part of the Torah, and what became known as the uh, Apocrypha or the Apocryphal readings, which are readings associated with it that may or may not have happened. A good Star Wars comparison is the recent short story book from a certain point of view, um, as well as the new Luke Skywalker book. We can get into that later, where, where Lucas film um, is sort of saying we want to be able to do things that are canon and then also things where authors can go off, you know, off in different directions. But anyways, so it began in religious studies a long time ago, and now it's being applied to what's going on in Star Wars. A really quick update, guys. If I don't know how much you listen to the podcast, but George Lucas owned Star Wars and everything related to it from the time he started thinking about it in the 70s to his $4 billion sale of it to Disney in 2012. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jedi Geek Girl, the first quote-unquote new canon started being released in 2014? Yep, A New Dawn. Which was a prequel to... Rebels. Star Wars Rebels. So Star Wars Rebels was actually the first on-screen new canon, even before uh, The Force Awakens. So you mentioned to me that you really started getting into the the current canon about a year ago. That's probably the same for me. I think everyone getting excited by the new movies certainly helped a lot. Um, so, but I'm sure you're aware generally of when things came out and where they fit. Were you aware that the Aftermath books... Um, which we're about to get into, were kind of controversial, at least to some people? Kind of. At that period in time, I got into the canon, the extended canon side of stories about right after The Force Awakens, 2015, nope, Force Awakens came out in 2015, right in the beginning part of 2016. 
So I started relatively early, but not at the point in time when reactions were starting to happen to Aftermath. And I wasn't really in the fandom, so I might have known a little bit, but I didn't really understand its quote-unquote controversial nature. And a lot of that has to do with people who were used to things that came before and high expectations. So personally, I love the book for what it is, but I don't have that long history that some people have. Yeah, so I, I also don't want to talk about it too much. The, the controversies basically boil down to two. The first is ridiculous, and the second is fully subjective. The first was that there was a lot of openly gay characters in the books, which we hadn't seen in Star Wars or Disney or, or you know related things much. It, it's already more common now than it was a few years ago, but at the time, there was a smear campaign from people who don't think people, you know, getting to choose who they love, it, you know, they have a problem with, um, you know, and so there was a smear campaign around that. But it wasn't helped that the first book they've admitted was rushed because of The Force Awakens being somewhat rushed, and there was a lot of, you know, Jedi Geek Girl, some people's criticisms of the force awakens is even though we all love it the main is that it's too much like the original new hope and there's so many references like almost too many references that doesn't bother me but you hear that criticism so aftermath was like that times 10 you know you know it was constantly mentioning blue milk and the names of all the aliens we knew it was like trying too hard to be stuff we were familiar with now as the series went along the books got better and the third book is amazing and has really set up all of what's going on now, including in Battlefront. And even though the Aftermath books were among the earliest written, it's the first and only trilogy of books we've gotten is that I'm aware of. And it's really the only post-Return of the Jedi stuff we've gotten until the Battlefront campaign, right? And so it kind of stands out that, that way. Would you agree with that? I'm trying to think right now of the canon sources of anything post this Battlefront Aftermath, The Shattered Empire. I want to say there's like one or two. Oh, Lost Stars tackled that that last year up to the Battle of Jakku. So, yeah, you're pretty much right. Yes. All right. So you guys heard all of our talk. You heard my little intro with the music a few minutes back. So in your words, Jedi Geek Girl, and you can take your time with this because I know there's a lot to talk about. What is your understanding of when you look at the original movies and you look at the new movies and you look at the new canon in the books? And by the way, people, we're probably not going to talk too much about it, but what used to be called the extended or expanded universe of Star Wars, which were books and video games that were created by Lucasfilm between 1977 and 2012, uh, when George Lucas was still in charge, they are still selling them. They call them legends, and they're not abiding by all of it as canon, although they are taking lots of things, including uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn, a guy we'll get back to later. So between Aftermath, Shattered Empire, I know you've read so much stuff, but what is your understanding about what changed in our understanding about the Emperor and the Empire sort of right before and then right after Return of the Jedi from maybe what we originally thought, if that makes sense. Because what we originally thought was the Emperor just screwed screwed the pooch real bad, as we say, got betrayed by his his disciple, and that was the end of things. But turns out that's not so much the case, right? 
If I may correct you for yes, a second, it's, 20, it's, 2014, it's 2014, not 2012, because there was material released in 2013, yes. early 2014, and late 2012 that yeah. is considered legend. So Yes, exactly. Jackie Garoxi corrected me this uh, in our pre-talk, and she's correct. The reason I always use 2012 is because I'm a behind-the-scenes guy, and I, and I always think about things in terms of the sale of property, but you are right. There were things that were released after the sale that aren't considered canon, and we should be clear it was not 100% for sure that they were going to make Star Wars the Clone Wars canon, but thank God they did because Rebels is amazing and the whole Clone Wars team is awesome and there's so much material in there that's informed a lot of the new canon, actually. So bookmark that as well. But really quickly, back to my... my, my um uh, my theory before is that we have to look at the events of Return of the Jedi now much, much differently after this stuff, right? Right. So going back to your question, mm-hmm. if we look at the original text of the, that would be considered the original trilogy, the Emperor was introduced as the mastermind behind Vader. He was a cloak figure that there wasn't too much depth beside deviousness and evil and basically the old man that you don't like that is grumpy it you just evil 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 and i'm gonna briefly touch upon it a little bit but in when we go to the growth of his character in legend he wasn't depicted between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy as being a man of substance. He was basically seen as a evil figure that there wasn't a whole lot of depth to. When we get to the prequel trilogy, we get Sheaved, which is Palpatine's first official canon name. We get him introduced in the Phantom Menace as a Senate. And as the prequel trilogy developed, we actually see that there's more to the character of Palpatine. He's actually pretty genius. He's probably, he's pretty manipulative. He's pretty smart. He's pretty patient. And that, as more Legends material came out, got developed and grown as, okay, this is a character that you should be feared. You should fear, not because he is strong or devious, but because he's clever. For those people who have watched Rebels and are familiar with Thrawn, think think next level Thrawn with dark side powers. And after the legend material was classified as legend, then we moved into canon and the post-canon Return of the Jedi stuff, this is made more evident that this is a guy who is smart, he's patient, he plays the long game, and you don't want to underestimate him because he has a plan for a lot of things. It wasn't until he fell back on his overconfidence that he was really able to be toppled. Yeah, one of the many great lines says, Luke says, your overconfidence will be your undoing, your highness. And Palpatine is just like, your faith in your friends will be yours. <laughs> that is such a strong moment. I mean, oh my God. But anyways, what I was going to say is Palpatine is so smart. If you look at his canon action from arguably be- before the Phantom Menace up until Return of the Jedi, everything he accounted for, there was only two moments, two moments where he risked everything. Everything besides that was calculated. The first time was in Revenge of the Sith. When he sends Anakin away, he is betting that Anakin comes back. 
you can argue that he's pulling back, but he did not know if Anakin was going to go to the dark side. And that succeeded. When you see Palpatine react to Anakin cutting off Mace Windu thing, that is genuinely surprised. Like he's like, oh my God, I pulled it off. The second time is when he put all his ships on Luke and the fall and the battle of Endor. Everything besides that, he calculated, he planned for, he accounted for. And we see that moving on to the main, main topic in Operation Cinder. A couple quick hits for you and in leading into the Cinder thing, because I love your analysis. I think the Anakin, other than Obi-Wan, the Anakin relationship with Palpatine, especially in episode three, is probably my favorite thing in uh, the prequels and the scene and everyone remembers in episode three where they're at the um, sort of Cirque du Soleil show in the Senate and Palpatine is being, old, you know, old man Palpatine telling stories about Plagueis and stuff to Anakin, who's kind of kneeling and then sitting next to him is is one of my favorite Star Wars scenes, period. For whatever criticisms I might have, episode three is great and I, I love that relationship in that movie. And I highly recommend, guys, even if you, especially if you don't like Hayden Christensen, to watch their interactions at Star Wars Celebration this past year and the panel that Ian McDermott did talking about Palpatine. It's really, really fascinating. But, and, yeah. And... And if I may recommend, if you like that character relationship, I recommend the Obi-Wan and Anakin comic, which explores that a little bit. So it's a quick read. It's a trade back. So you read it within an hour. But if you love that relationship between Palpatine and Anakin, that story is perfect for that. And I like I like that you brought up Palpatine pre-Emperor because... Even though Operation Cinder and the contingency and this stuff is very much an Emperor Palpatine thing as opposed to just a Sheev Palpatine thing, the, the seeds were being uh, planted much earlier. So I have a couple quick questions for you about the, about the Emperor, and then I want to jump into what the hell is Operation Cinder and why is he doing it. So first question, um, these aren't, I, I don't have right or wrong answers here, I'm just curious. Is it possible that Palpatine is much older than we think? Mm. Is it possible? Absolutely. Is it likely? Not counting for legend stuff? Hmm. I lean towards the side of no. Is it possible? It's possible I could be struck by lightning inside right now. But okay, is but it it's going not your happen? gut. But no. It's not your gut. No, it's not. No, no. I, and my, my gut feeling says no. And I'm overanalyzing that question, but no. Okay, well, then the second question will be easy because the only way th- there's a yes to what th- I'm about to ask is if he is much older, which is, is there any chance he is Darth Plagueis and was talking about himself? Absolutely not. Okay. No. Because Plagueis is canon. This is made evident in Tarkin. But Dr. Plagueis was in Legend, but Tarkin made him canon. So Dr. Plagueis as Dr. Sidious Master is canon. So they can't be one and the same. Okay, what about this, though? Could Palpatine have been talking about himself while claiming he was talking about his master, Darth Plagueis? Oh, it's absolutely canon that he killed Plagueis. I mean, like I said, it's... No, no, I mean in terms of the the powers that Plagueis had. Because remember, what what does he say to Anakin? He says, 
Darth Plagueis knew how to cure people from the dead, and I can show you the way. But that seems to apply that he would know how, even though he doesn't end up doing it. So, basically, the question would be, do you think he has the power that he speaks of? Exactly. And to me, I would say, the thing about Sith is that they're really tricky. They speak the truth. They're like the devil with a forked tongue. They don't lie to you. They might twist the truth, but it's truth. If we look at Attack of the Clones, Count Dooku basically flat out tells Obi-Wan, hey, the Senate is in control of the Sith, and Obi-Wan did not believe him, where the Jedi tend to lie. So, it has to be true from a certain point of view, but is it objectively true that he has the power? I think he has the knowledge. I don't know if he absolutely has the definitive power, but I think he has some of the knowledge, the, mi- the missing pieces. Okay, so this is a perfect bridge into the observatories, Operation Cinder, the contingency, and so forth. And people, again, we will not be spoiling anything from the new movie. It's possible that Snoke's name could come up. I don't really think so, but we will be speculating based on no spoilers or revealed facts because there haven't been any. I will at least be speculating as to Ryan Johnson's next trilogy and future Star Wars material that it's clear that what Palpatine's plan is, as we understand it now, is going to be fleshed out more in some forth in some way or some point in the future, I think is, is undeniable. Um, and we'll get back to whether you agree with that or not. Real quick, though, so we set it up. We need to set up a couple key terms for the listeners. The main one I want to bring up is the word virgins. When you talk about virgences in the force, what is your understanding of, or, or can you you know define or, or tell the listeners what, what a virgins in the force is, which they talk about a lot in the prequels? I would say that it would be something that would be out of the norm, if that makes any sense. If you listen to a audio recording to make it relatable, it would be like something that wouldn't sound right. It might not be something disruptive or overly either negative or positive, but it's something there that wouldn't be there otherwise, I would say, would be my definition. So I've been researching this, guys. Um, I I do recommend the uh, Fantasy Flight uh, Star Wars RPGs, in general, it's just a really interesting system, but if you love the Force and you want to get canon that no one else knows about and that they haven't actually written books about, but in terms of planets and stuff, is, is now canon. Um, the, so the, the Star Wars RPG is divided up into basically scum and villainy, and then there's Age of the Rebellion, I think it's called, where you're a rebel fighting the Empire, or vice versa. And the third, of course, is the Jedi one, which is called Forces and Destiny, and not to be confused with Star Wars Destiny or Star Wars Forces of Destiny. Uh, Star Wars Forces and Destiny are the Jedi um, parts of the RPG, although you can mix everything together. But one of the books, which I bought just for sheer knowledge, is called... Uh, where is it? Nexus of Power. And Nexus of Power goes through all the planets in the galaxy that have type, that have virgences, past or present, in the Force. And essentially a virgence can take place with a person, it can take place with an object, or it can take place in a place, right? So Luke and Anakin Skywalker are perfect examples of virgences in the Force. So 
that is why they can be sensed. Even Ezra and Kanan, for those who watch Rebels, in season two, everywhere they go, the Inquisitors keep finding them. And one of the ways that that's possible is because Vader is tracking them and tracking the Virgences around them. You know, this started with Luke being able to detect, uh, I'm sorry, Vader being able to detect Luke in the original movie and then in Empire. But Virgences can also be located in places. And most people don't know, Jedi Geek Girl, that Coruscant, way, 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 way back in the day, at least according to the new canon, was one of the most powerful Sith virgences in history. And so they basically built the Jedi Temple on top of one of the most like Sithy things ever. And that is a big reason why Yoda and Obi-Wan and so forth are unable to detect the Emperor um, or Palpatine and his machinations in the prequels. It's not just them being dumb, which is what most people just say about the Jedi when it comes to the prequels. So virgences are really important because the powerful Jedi and the powerful Sith are always looking for them because they provide knowledge, they provide power, they can provide answers. Did all that? If I may. Yes, go. If I may correct you, of course. When it comes to the Fantasy Flight games RPGs, they aren't a hundred percent canon because it was a form of storytelling developed, created, and grown before the canon quote unquote decoration was made. So it has a mixture of canon and legend stuff, yes. but it isn't one hundred percent canon. I am only I referring wanna- to ones produced since 2014 and i've double checked this particular book and these sources and these these planets are in the current universe maybe they'll never use them but they are in the current universe but the bigger thing is just the discussion of what a virgence is and how you can have an immovable virgence like on a planet or you can have a moving virgence like a person or an object like a holocron go ahead and for that specific reason you're uh, exactly correct on what the definition of a virgence is we know Sith in particular search for these things because of power and their obsession with power. So the first thing we didn't know about Palpatine, and this is, I think, the thing that makes... So we're going to tell you the thing that makes sense before we tell you the thing that doesn't make sense so that then the final thing makes a ton of sense. The thing that makes sense about Palpatine would be that he would have stuff called observatories, which are basically their equivalent of our giant telescopes that are looking towards the edges of the universe. And he had all sorts of Sith and Jedi artifacts at these places, but mostly he was looking well beyond the known galaxy. This fits with his character in a general standpoint, um, but is uh, 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 Jedi Girl, uh, uh, are the observatories something as well that we didn't really know till Shattered Empire and Aftermath, even though it sort of makes sense? In canon? Yes. I would believe yes. The answer means toward yes, but we see some of it in the Lando comic, which came out, I think, a little bit ahead of before Shattered Empire. So I think that's too nitpicky, but it would be yes in canon. That would be like the first time we have seen that Palpatine collects force-sensitive objects and was looking beyond what is considered the current Star Wars galaxy. Right. So I have a question about this. I just want to set it up. All right. Fast forward to the now. Iden Versio. They lose the Death Star. 
she thinks her dad, who's the big admiral, is going to you know, go after the rebellion, which would make sense that they would keep fighting. And very soon, she's on her home planet and being ordered by her dad to kill everyone on the planet, basically, because that's the emperor's wishes. And I'm going, are you fucking kidding me? Excuse my language. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this makes absolutely less than no sense. And then I started researching it, like I said, and remembering that it was an aftermath and so forth. And and the main idea is that the emperor, whether he died prematurely or not, had ambitions beyond this galaxy and understood that the empire he created was mostly corrupt and shitty. And he wanted to preserve the best parts and create something bigger at the fringes of the galaxy or beyond in the unknown regions. Did, did I get that mostly right in terms of his, mo- his seeming motivations? And what are your thoughts on that? It is my understanding, and this goes back to the character of Palpatine, that he is basically, to put it into real-world analogies, a chess player. He's playing the long game. He's playing the chess. He's moving his pieces. He's sacrificing things. He's playing both sides. We see this in the Clone War. He's accounting for everything, and he's sitting there moving his pieces, and he knows that his pieces are valuable, and they won't last forever, and he has to plan for what would happen if the if we lose the queen? How can we still win the game? And the question is, we can't. Otherwise, what he developed, the empire would be torn apart. It would be torn apart from the inside by the governing parties of the territorial govern. We see this in Legends. So he's like, okay, so what I need to do is I need to destroy what I created. So what comes out of it? is stronger basically peering it purifying it by fire uh this is what he's accounting for and he he will need the empire to end because if it doesn't if he does not destroy it himself or account for that then it will be a shell of itself and his ideas and what he set up cannot survive so i want to ask you i want to follow that in a minute about and again, people, we are in pure hypothetical territory here, uh, but we're very well researched on this. And while I haven't read nearly the canon that Jedi Geek Girl has, I've read about almost everything that's come out, and I've read a bunch of it. And I've been thinking about these issues since I was six, which was like 30 years ago. And I think a lot about these issues. Too much. I think too much about these issues, but they're fascinating. So before I get into the Emperor's true motives, let's start a little bit more basic. What is with the observatories? What is he, in your opinion, or just your speculation, what is he looking at? What is he hoping to see? And I know that you you like to stay within the works and not talk outside the works, but I'm going to have to bring this in at some point. What do you think the makers behind this, like the story group, are trying to seed to us with things like the observatories and complicating uh, Palpatine? So, number one, let's talk in-universe. In-universe, this is talk about, I believe, in the first Aftermath book. It's been a while since I read it. It is mentioned that Palpatine senses a strong dark side presence, a strong dark side presence outside of his galaxy. And this is also kind of in legend, but that's not relevant. Um, So he senses this strong dark side power in the unknown regions. And 
it is an unknown region for a reason. It's not easily accessible. It's actually kind of hard and difficult to get to the unknown regions. And he is, he, he, he's a power seeker. He wants that power. So he wants to get to that power. So we, this is established in canon. Outside universe, why are the Lucasfilm story group creating this? One, it makes the universe larger without rehashing the same legends things uh the unknown regions is touched upon in legends and instead of doing the same type of story they're doing something new and something different and it actually opens the door a lot wider than what people are currently seeing and i think it will probably be an important part moving forward but we'll touch upon that when we talk about the possible future trilogy but I actually think it's quite clever and it's kind of like touching the same thing as they did for Legend, but not exactly the same thing. And it's actually pretty exciting and it's really exciting seeing this grow because we're getting small pieces and pieces that people do not know are pieces until we get bigger pieces. It also would explain why the Emperor was somewhat casual and cavalier about uh, Vader's obsession with Luke in the fi- in Return of the Jedi. I mean, he certainly wants to turn Luke, and he's getting great entertainment of uh, with them fighting each other. But it almost feels like, and this is before I knew the current stuff, that Palpatine is just going along with it for Vader's sake. He's like, well, I want to keep Vader happy, so if this will keep him happy, then we can do it. But he doesn't see Luke as the Messiah that he either is, or maybe some people see him to be. And maybe it's because he is, you know, and he's constantly, what is the Emperor doing at all times when he's not talking to people? He's looking out of the window of the Death Star, right? He's looking out into the far reaches of space. So this makes total sense with his character. So my question is, do you think it's a person or people? Do you think it's a planet or uh, an astronomical uh, body? Um, what, what, if you either had to guess or just find something that you think is cool, like what could he possibly be looking out there that's so powerful that it communicates this far and that he would be so interested in it? Personally, I lean towards it being Snoke or being t- directly tied into Snoke. Wait, hold on, hold on. I, w- I want you to finish this thought. Really quickly, guys, we're about 40 minutes in the podcast. We're not going to do any spoilers from the new movie. We don't know any, but we're going to do a little Snoke talk, as I hinted we might. So just be warned, theorizing about Snoke. Uh, Go ahead, Janet Geek Girl. Do you want me to mention what was in the trailer? Yeah, so it, it, this we're we'll, we're only going to talk about what was in the trailer been officially released by Disney and then speculation from fans like us. So that's if you consider that a spoiler, then come back. If not, then come come with us because we don't we don't know anything that's not already out there. So yeah, you can mention the trailer and stuff. Go for it. I am only going to talk about the trailer that was released during Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. But in the trailer, we see that we see Ray and agonizing pain bent over and we see in the background the yellow robe that we know is Snoke. It is my theory that Snoke is a powerful ancient, we know he's ancient this is mentioned in The Force Awakens reference material, not really a spoiler we know that he is ancient, well not ancient but old, he's been around since before the formation of the Empire and we do know through the 
Last Jedi trailer that he uses the Force, or it's highly implied that he uses the Force. And I think that that is what Palpatine senses. I think he senses Snoke, or or to be really spectatorial and going into the the end of Thrawn, we know that the Shish fear something. They are that's why they that's why Thrawn is talking about the Thrawn novel now. That is why Thrawn is in our galaxy. He's looking for alliances because there's something out there in the unknown region that the Chiss are either fighting or are afraid of. And if you know who the Chiss are, that's saying a lot. So I'm wondering if it's a army that Snoke is in charge of or if it's like a race of people that Snoke is a part of. Is so people out there so Grand Admiral Theron um I mean at least growing up was by far the most popular and cool uh character to come out in the books in the old EU as they called it in the 90s Timothy Zahn wrote a trilogy of books that took place right after Return of the Jedi the main character was this you know blue skinned uh Grand Admiral named Theron he was so popular that they brought him back into canon, albeit slightly modified in Rebels, and now he's in a book, his own book, and we're going to hear more about him. Somehow, Jedi Geek Girl, it's clear that he survives into the at least the beginning of the building of the First Order, and yet people somehow think he's going to die in Rebels. I'm not sure how that works, but does his race in the current canon, the Chiss, his species, they are from, from another galaxy? Is that canon? It is confirmed that Thrawn will survive Rebels. It is not confirmed that he survives the reign of the Empire. We do not know. As far as I'm aware, he does not make it past Return of the Jedi, but that, like, neither here nor there. Well, he is, but he is part of the contingency, or, or at least the beginning of Operation Cinder. He's mentioned in conjunction with it, but yes, it doesn't say how, how long that, yeah, that can go. He, he is mentioned that... Thrawn coming to, I believe, Thrawn coming from the Unknown Regions helps reunite Palpatine's curiosity in the Unknown Region. Um, he actually helps because at the end of the Thrawn novel, he actually sends the apprentice to Thrawn, if you can call him the apprentice, to the Unknown Region to perhaps learn under them like Thrawn came into our galaxy to learn. But yes, it is canon that Thrawn is from not the current Star Wars galaxy. His race of people are in the unknown regions, like I previously mentioned. That is why Thrawn came over to the main Star Wars galaxy, is to seek alliances. And Thrawn is aligning himself with the strongest authoritarian power. That is why he's working for the Empire, because he sees them as a strong possibility strong ally. He doesn't really care too much about the Empire cause. He cares about, okay, we have a battle. We have to take care of ourselves. We need help. Who is the strongest to help? And at that point in time, it was the Empire. So that is why he's working for the Empire. So how did he get here? Because people may not realize this, but even in the biggest galaxies, 
the distance between any two point in a galaxy is way less than the distance between any two galaxies. And by factors of millions and billions. Galaxies are very, very, very far apart from each other. Unless you get, you know, into situations where they're gravitationally in, in loop. Do we, do we know how he got here and why he came? Here, I say here. The Star Wars galaxy, excuse me. It's Star Wars. You're talking about a universe that they can make thousands of light spheres journey in a couple hours. Well, I'm not asking days. scientifically. I'm more, I guess, yeah, I didn't really phrase that well. <laughs> they must have come up, there must have been a reason why they finally had a major character come from outside of the galaxy to this galaxy. Um, and maybe that was just to set up the Sheev plot right i mean that might be the the reason or snoke or or whoever i'm not saying like star trek wise and this is an interesting question which is i like that they're playing with some vague notions of quantum physics and things in star wars they definitely don't want to go techno babble hyper science like star trek that's what makes star wars great is that science fantasy not pure science fiction but with observatories and stuff like that, looking into other galaxies, like it is bringing in some of those ideas. So my question was more um, a, a meta question, if you will, about you know why now would they be like, okay, Thrawn's from another galaxy? Because it didn't have to be. He could just be from the Outer Rim, which I believe is how he was in the original p- portrayal. So in Legends, he was from the Outer Unknown region. He was outside from outside this galaxy, oh. I believe. So that, that that is staying consistent. But I think why Thrawn is, was sent over to, I'm going to use the word Oz in terms of Star Wars just for simplicity going forward. Yeah. Why he was sent to our galaxy is that the Sis are in trouble. They are either in war and about to be overrun, which, which again, when you think about the Sis, that is very scary. Or they are on the verge of it. Think of it to put it into real terms of a cold war. Maybe they're in a cold war and about to go to cold war and they need help. They need information. They need allies. They need resources and information. So that is why I think Thrawn was sent over to our galaxy is because they need help. But how would they even communicate? I mean, why they would have to have the similar notions of Sith, which would mean that the ancient Sith spanned multiple... Ga- that would have to be the explanation, was that the ancient Sith spanned multiple galaxies, and now we're reuniting. So the current definition of Sith is a more of a religious, dogmatic point of view, and compared to the legend, right. ancient things so but the, the legend blah, 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 but the force in the Star Wars universe is not defined by Sith or Jedi so there could be other dark side force users but they're not Sith per se and who's to say that the force is even relevant in that galaxy in legend there was galaxy that was like that where the force wasn't relevant I don't think that is the case but I don't think that he's familiar with what a Sith is because a Sith is like the darkest of black, you know what I'm saying? Where the Jedi is supposed to supposed to be the whitest of white, but things aren't black and things aren't white. There's always a mixture. But I'm getting sidetracked. But anyways, no, it's all part of it. I guess I'm trying to get to like you know what is Lucasfilm's big plan here about if we're going to go to other galaxies? Because by the way, I've been saying to you and others and on the podcast that 
by following the breadcrumb trails, I think this is leading towards at least allowing Ryan Johnson to go to other galaxies in the new trilogy or other writers or other TV makers to do some of this stuff, which I think is awesome, but there has to be a reason for it. Like, for example, in Star Trek, which I know you're not a huge fan of, uh, when they did Star Trek Deep Space Nine in the late 90s, where it was just a space station, but they discovered this wormhole, which went to you know a quadrant of the galaxy that they didn't even think was accessible. And so they did it for story reasons. They created an entire series out of being able to access this new quadrant of the galaxy. So you want to do these things for story reasons. Um, this can be based on things you've read, just thought about or whatever, but like, what's the benefit of having them even discuss other galaxies when it comes to Star Wars? If we're talking about specifically story reasons, yeah, everything, almost everything has been done in Legends. There's still like a whole bunch of holes in Legends. So basically to understand where they are going, we have to understand where they come from. In Legends, uh, the story was pretty much tied pretty well. They went in the far back in the past, they went far in the future. One of the areas where they really didn't go as far as I'm aware, I didn't read a lot of it, is the unknown regions. And if you're trying to grow a story to a fandom that pretty much seen it all, you go somewhere where you haven't gone before, even though where you are right now, there are places where you haven't gone in current story, if that makes any sense. That's like, never been I'm, a, gonna, I'm sorry, but that's a Star Trek trope. You know, exploring the unknown has never been a major concern of Star Wars. It's always been a concern of Star Trek. That's what I find so interesting. Well, the thing about it is, is again, I'm not really an expert on Star Trek, but with Star Trek, you have a limited time span correct well what is the time span of star trek like 200 500 years you know it's funny it's it's similar to star wars in that they've boxed themselves into like a 200 year window but they easily could go much farther in the future they've come back way back into the past with recent series but they could go much further in the future but uh, if you take out time travel you're talking about a you know let's say from the 23rd century to the 26th century or something like that Okay, so with Star Wars, you don't have that limitation. Like I said, if we look at the Legends universe, there's 5,000 years of stories from like the beginning thing to the the last thing. So where usually a story would go up and down along the quote-unquote time spectrum, Star Wars has already been there and done that. They can go do that. They can go tell a Knights of the Old Republic story. They can make a new canon story that is new and fresh. But Star Wars has already been there. And the thing about Mm -hmm. going to the parent company is, I don't really think it's much Disney, but the thing about Disney is is they're known for going new places and trying new things. I mean, sure, they revisit things, but they try do new things. And I think for Star Wars to stay fresh and relevant, they have to go to these new places while growing the old past. Otherwise, you're getting rehashes of the same time periods and story being told, if that makes any sense. So instead of telling stories told in Middle Earth, let's tell something in space. You know what I'm, I guess, if that makes any sense? It does, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pushing you on this because... Please th- do. In the opening to Star Trek, whether it's, you know, Captain Kirk or Captain Picard, they say, you know, seek out new life and new civilizations. Like, that is the role of Starfleet. Yes, they end up fighting bad guys, but the main role of Starfleet is to explore, 
Like, that is the point of Star Trek, is to explore. That's not the point of Star Wars. And that's why more people like Star Wars. That's why I like Star Wars better, because Star Wars is about morals and ethics and magic and mysticism and human relationships and all of these great things, right? So my point is, what even if they go to this new galaxy, other than just finding new alien races, like, to be blunt, like, people do stupid shit everywhere at all times. I don't care if you're a human, if you're an alien, a man, a woman, child, adult, people are always doing the same dumb stuff. So what, like, I understand that they're trying to expand things from a literary standpoint, but what are they going to find? What could they find in this new universe that's different than what they have in, in their own uh, galaxy, I guess? Well, the first thing is, is it is growing the universe. One of the problems, quote unquote, with the Legends universe is everything was conformed to a set of characters that everything everything seems to rotate around them. With the current canon direction of Star Wars, everything isn't based around a fixed family or a fit, fixed set of characters. There's stories being told about characters that we aren't going to see again in a setting that perhaps we might not address again. And growing the universe into the unknown regions helps that philosophy towards addressing storytelling and stuff like that. It allows a new sense of creativity that in the current Star Wars universe is somewhat limited. So if I say, what is in the unknown regions of Star Wars? Like, we know what's in the Star Wars universe, quote unquote, what could be beyond it? And that is very, that is very creative because if we look at the differences between planets and planets, growing that to galaxy, it enlarges it. And I, I actually like the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So this is a perfect opportunity for us to head to the final act, but it's not going to be a super short one because I want to talk about the books themselves. Mm-hmm. And I specifically want to talk about the books because they're, they're purposefully... Look, you don't have to be a super hardcore canon head to know that they're purposefully not overdoing stories between episodes six and seven because they want mystery and we don't know exactly what happened with Kylo yet and the relationship with Luke. And we do the Aftermath book, which takes place in the couple years after Jedi leading to the Battle of Jakku, which we haven't talked about, which maybe we should. We now have Battlefront. The main, I think the main reason that canon lovers were excited about Battlefront campaign was because it was going to be new post-Return of the Jedi stuff, and we did see more about what happened after the Death Star, and what happened with Operation Cinder, and how horrifying it was, and some of the reasons Palpatine might be doing it, and so forth. Um, I'm going to say that my favorite canon book... And I even like it more now because I can see the ties to some of this stuff more. So far, for me, has been uh, Bloodline, which follows uh, Princess Leia, I believe, six years before The Force Awakens. As a, She's just a tired of being a politician and working with these idiots on both sides, but someone needs to be a leader in the New Republic, and it's about how all this unravels and her relationship with Han and hinting a relationship with Ben. Um did you like Bloodline A and B? What what are some of your your favorite of of the new canon, especially that's relating to the stuff we really want to know about? In my opinion, about what takes place between the original trilogy and the new trilogy is a big question. Yes, I have read Bloodline. I really enjoyed it, but my favorite canon book, kind of on topic, is actually Claudia's Gray other book. Uh, well, I shouldn't say her other book because 
she has written three now, but is Lost Stars. I really love that book. I adore it to death. It is such a fantastic entry point for people wanting to get into canon. Yeah, can you give us a little synopsis of, of, of Lost Stars? Because I know that the people that that love and don't love that book is for the same reason, which is it's kind of like a space opera romance, right? It's basically, I've heard the analogies of Romeo and Juliet in space. And the people that don't like it call it Twilight in space. I didn't say that. I, I, I like Lost Stars, but I know some people think it's basically Twilight in space. I have never heard that analogy, even from the people who don't really care for the book. Yeah. That's interesting. I never yeah. read Twilight, so... yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I, I guess I'm for the better there, you yeah. know. But so that that does follow some newish characters, but that do f- that are related in in some way to the ones we know. I think it's been a while. It it is. It's kind of like Force. So it's basically it's basically Romeo and Juliet with Force scum with a Star Wars skin. I guess if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. That being said, there's still a lot of good story there. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like we talked about with Rebel Rising the um the line between young adult and adult with the new canon is very thin and i like that a lot about what lucasfilm is doing is that books like rebel rising are technically they call young adult but are really dark with tons of adult themes and very well written and i like that they're just trying to get people reading and learning more and loving more about what's going on but i want to try and piece together using some of these books what the hell's going on now, the thing that makes sense to nobody, no matter how hard of core of your fan you are, is every 20 years, people just forget who the Jedi are, right? I mean, you've got the prequels, and the Jedi are all over the galaxy, and then there's Order 66, and then 20 years later, Harrison Ford's talking about Hocus Pocus, and nobody believes Ben Kenobi is a Jedi, or that they even existed, and blah, 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 blah. And then Luke comes to be Luke, and everyone knows who Luke is, and then 30 years later, Ray's like, Luke Skywalker? I thought he was a myth! Right? So it doesn't really make sense. They keep forgetting about the Jedi. And that's something I don't think the canon has been able to explain, nor do I think it's really their responsibility to. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that conundrum. Well, the Jedi is a form of religion. It's not really a spectrum of dark side, light side. The Jedi is basically a form of how do you worship the light side of the Force. So if you look at the Jedi at that sense, it absolutely makes sense that people would not know it. If you look at the Han Solo scenario, the Jedi were around 19 years before um, A New Hope, and he was about, I believe, 32, so he would be 13 years of age. It's not highly unlikely that he would not have seen the Jedi or heard of the Jedi because of maybe a sheltered environment. We'll probably get into that in the Han Solo movie. As far as Rey and the Force Awakens setting, that's 30 years. That's even longer than between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. And there was basically Luke Skywalker was the only Jedi and he formed his academy and probably didn't have any graduates so it's no surprise that people aren't familiar with the the jedi i mean there is there is the blah, blah, blah. there is the church of the force which worships which kind of worships the jedi but it, it's not surprising at all so that's just my i don't find any problem okay. with it um so I guess to, to, to tie this all into the new trilogy, we're talking about the First Order. So what became the First Order was essentially 
some of what became the First Order was part of what Palpatine wanted to be his group within the contingency to go to the Unknown Regions. But some things happened, right? So two of the major players... Is should Palpatine die and Operation Cinder kick in and the, and the Emperor's larger contingency, the plan was for a number of his closest aides to do stuff for him. And two of those close aides, one was named Gallius Rex, and the other one was named Ray Sloan. Everyone loves Sloan. We're hoping to see here at some point. We'll see. And Rex was a true believer uh, in, in the Emperor's plan, had no problem with Cinder, but he got even got power hungry after the Emperor died. And want to become the new emperor. Um, and then the, there was this big final battle at, at, um, at Jakku, you know, Rey's, well, it's not her home world because she was dropped there, but where we find Rey is Jakku. And Jakku also has a major Sith virgins. And there, the plan for the end of Operation Cinder, if I'm correct, that Geek Girl, was to lure pretty much all of the Empire and the Rebellion fleets to the planet for a final battle and then blow up the planet, thereby destroying both the Rebellion and the Empire as part of Operation Cinder. Did I get that right? You would be correct in that, I believe, yes. Yeah, but what happens is Sloane, <laughs> even though she's an Empire person, thinks this is nuts, and Sloane basically kills and stops Gallius Rex, and Sloane decides to take the remnants of the Imperial forces into the Outer Rim, and I guess over that third, including the father of, uh, who we now know as General Hux, who was just a boy then, his dad was a big part of all this, and they went out and from the First Order. So it seems to me on the surface that the Empire, the Emperor's plan failed, right? Because some of the people he wanted as part of this died or turned, and now the First Order is just a new version. It also helps explain why the First Order is ju- quote-unquote just a new version of the Empire as opposed to something radically different unless you think it will be something different and we just don't know about it yet if we go back to the analogy of Palpatine being a chess player and the pieces on the board being his empire and the rebellion and flipping over the board keeping the important pieces i would say that the plan is successful because it did lead to the destruction of the empire and it Mm. did make the strong element of the empire survive yes the rebellion quote-unquote new Technically, at that time, the New Republic wasn't really destroyed, but as we see in The Force Awakens and canon material surrounding that, it's not a problem. The remnants of the Empire was able to really much wipe the New Republic off the face of the Earth. It's basically only the Resistance standing in the way of the First Order taking power again if you can even say, use the word again in the galaxy. So I would say that his plan is successful because his all of his best elements did survive from the Empire, and he was basically able to hit the reset button outside of the Republic. So, no, I don't think it was a failure, just like I don't think it was a failure of how he approached the events in The Phantom Menace due to the survival of Padme and the victory on Naboo. He accounted for everything. So, yeah, I I don't think he failed. I think he actually succeeded. Maybe not 100%, but I, I don't know. 90 95% is still pretty solid. Well, it depends, again, on what the relationship is between the observatories and what the between the obser- and then with um, Project Cinder. Because it seems that one reading of this is that 
what became the first order or whatever the emperor's notion of a new order would be, would go to other galaxies and conquer other galaxies and maybe come back and reconquer the Star Wars galaxy or just add that to other galaxies, right? It seems like it's an inter or in, intragalactic uh, plan. It doesn't seem as powerful as Starkiller bases and as evil and powerful as First Empire seems. It doesn't seem like conquering things outside of the galaxy is a priority for them, but maybe you would argue that that could change with Snoke and so forth. I would have to disagree with that. Okay. I don't think he sees, I don't think he sent people over to count, uh, conquer that galaxy. So what's he I actually at? think he. I still don't know what he's well, looking okay. at with those observatories. Okay, so let's look at the example. Let's go back and say that he's looking at a stronger dark side presence outside of his galaxy. So he wants to destroy the empire. Because it's not going to be sustainable anymore. He wants to take the strongest parts of the empire. Now, what do you do with those parts? You send them to a place to make them stronger. He knows that the non-known regions are strong in the dark side. He doesn't really know what's out there. He knows something out there. So he's like, okay, I'm not going to be around. So I'm going to take everything that is strong about my empire. And I'm going to send it over there. And I'm going to let them be forged by fire. And formed by fire. So I think... Basically, the rest of the empire was sent to Snoke, and Snoke took it and make it, it made it his own and made it stronger. So it's not so much as an intergalactical conquest as it is by reforming and strengthening what was it that you had. That's the way I look at it, and I just came to that conclusion right now. So I think his plan was to make the remnants of the empire stronger and what better way than to send them somewhere that can do that for you i guess i just don't know why he would care about preserve if he was to die prematurely which of course happens i I don't know if he would really care what would happen to the empire at that point um he if when you look at him he's a sith and sith came out of extinction basically this was established in the phantom minutes so he's like what can i do to what can i do to ensure the survival of what i have built so i think it absolutely makes sense because the synth thrive on power clinging to power growing power and even though mortality is a thing and he would lose that one day he still wanted it to thrive and succeed and he knew that Sending the Empire to the dark side, to a place in the unknown regions that is strong in the dark side, that it would also ensure the survival of the Sith, if that makes any sense. Like, Snoke is not a Sith, Kylo is not a Sith, but they're strong in the dark side. So, when he is an agent of the dark side, he wants that to survive. And without the Empire... There would, if, if the Empire wasn't sent to the unknown region, then hypothetically, I mean, you always have a dark side. What he would know as the dark side would be fizzled, if that makes any sense. So he sent it to a place that was strong in the dark side to make sure that the dark side survived, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. It's just getting me so excited for the whole thing um, about what could be coming. So, all right, well, let me ask you... Um, a two-parter here as we sort of head towards the finish. Uh, what is one of your favorite canon books that is more recent and that we haven't really talked about? Did, can you please describe recent? Well, 
I mean, I mean it, yeah, I guess you've been reading for the year. What, what's a what's a what's a book or or a comic book series that isn't super canon heavy in the sense of what we've talked about, but you consider to just be a great kind of Star Wars story or or character or series of characters. During the during the whole canon yeah. time or the last six months, oh, during the whole that canon you've time, read, that I'm saying that you've read in fairly recent times. It's made an impression on you. There's been a lot of stuff. That's a pretty loaded question. Yeah, just well, just one, just one that like you would recommend to people who the, who might only read like the aftermath stuff, but mm-hmm. because of the canon. But you would recommend it just based on, on story and it feeling like a Star Wars thing, you know. The Darth Vader Volume One series, twenty-five issues. It introduced Doctor Afra. It gave us the reaction of how Darth Vader. It actually told us how Darth Vader found out Luke was his son. It introduced Doctor Afra, arguably the most possible, the most po- the most popular extended canon character we currently have. It gave us BB. One, it gave us those. Uh, it gave us triple zero and BT eleven, BT one one Yep. Gave us BT. It gave us triple zero. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. Unfortunately, I would recommend reading the main Star Wars series to because it's kind of like they intertwine. But yeah. that's a pretty solid thing. If you want something that's a little bit more digestible, I recommend the Darth Maul series which was a five-issue miniseries. It was very rich in the dark side. It was very good. So there's so much. I recommend everything, yeah. <laughs> pretty much everything. I, um, I'm i always way behind on comics because um, I just always go to the books first. But I think Marvel's done a pretty good job with the newer comics from what I can tell. I think my favorite, just from a storytelling and art standpoint, is actually the Lando series from a couple of years ago, the five-issue Lando series, because it's totally in character of Lando, but really fleshes out his character and tells a, a really interesting story, and it's sort of a buddy story with him and Lobot, and, uh, um, and just beautiful, beautiful artwork. I love that. The Vader stuff is great that I've read, um, and uh, yeah, definitely check all that stuff out. Um, so... I guess it's sort of a wrap up. Like uh, it seems like you're mostly positive about where they've gone with the uh, with the with the new canon, you know, s- so far in the in the new era. I am. I'm not a cynical person. I'm actually pretty approachable when it comes to things. So I'm. I, there's really not much that I really discuss. There's things that I don't like, but there's not much that I'm like actively dis- that I don't have an active disdain for. You know. Um. And I don't, I mean, I had tons of questions, but I, I, I don't, we don't have to all do this in one podcast. This was really fascinating. Anything you'd like to bring up that's sort of a loose end that we were talking about? In relation that we are talking about, um, trying to think here. Um, I would say be patient. I know that Canon is still young and where Star Wars is going is still not yet seen, but have faith. Stick with it. We're only two, three years in. I mean, we're only two and three years in. We're only two to three years in when we're already this far. Imagine how far we'll be in five years. And five years is not that long. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I urge the people who love Legends from back in the day, which I get because that was my childhood too, to realize that they've already worked in a lot of interesting stuff from it into the new canon. So who knows? People went kind of nuts 
when it seemed Ryan Johnson said he didn't want to do Knights of the Old Republic, and he all he was saying was, I don't want to tell that exact story. I didn't say I don't want to go into the past and talk about something like that. So everything's on the board. Everything's on the table. And I think that Lucasfilm deserves a ton of credit for tying things together and but it mostly feels organic to me i think early on they had a like i said with the first aftermath book and a couple things they they were trying to reference too much stuff um but i actually like that they're having more standalone stories where that are character studies like tarkin and thrawn and you know even leia and bloodline i know that's more tied in with the canon but still it was really a leia character study primarily and i i absolutely love that um so all right well before we promote your stuff final question what are you most excited about in the new movie coming up in a couple days ray i love ray and I love Jedi Ray. I mean, I wish my hair was thick enough so I could tie my hair up in the bun. <laughs> I, it's Ray is a BA. She, yep. oh my God. So I would say Ray. There's other things that I'm looking forward to that I really don't want to get into because it's too speculatory. But mm-hmm. oh my God, I love Ray. So. Yes. Ray. She, yep. She's Ray. Ray's Ray. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what she, what she's done. I'm excited for all of it. Um, but f- even before she passed, I, I was most excited for the Poe Leia relationship. It, that just really fascinates me. Um, and, uh, it looks like they're going to have great chemistry, but really all the storylines I'm excited for. Um, and, uh, I personally am happy that JJ was brought back to do episode nine. I, I don't, I think that was a great decision, but I know not everyone agrees. I actually would like to, because I haven't had a chance to do it and it's a little off topic, but no, I would actually it. like to talk about my reaction to the trailer when I saw the trailer, when I saw the trailer and this brings to come back around to what you said, but when I saw the trailer, it was so powerful. I actually cried when I saw Leia on the screen. And at that moment, because you're like, oh no, because we know what happened to her in real life. And seeing her on the screen, it's going to hurt. It's really going to hurt. And bringing it back around to the trailer, I went from excitement, excitement to the music of the Jedi Temple theme, Jedi, the Jedi Steps theme to the lightsaber streaming to crying over the Leia scene to mouth being opened at the conclusion of that trailer so basically that's the long way of me saying that it's going to hit seeing Leia on screen because we're not going to see Carrie Fisher as Leia again and we know that episode 9 was set up to be her movie and now it can't be and it's really sad yeah I mean the only positive spin I can put on it is that what a I'm way to go. Cry. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm going to cry so much during the movie. Uh, what a awesome way. To, if you're going to go out, you are a Princess Leia. She even says it. She says, I know I'm Princess Leia, you know, and to go out as General Leia um, 
and she helped write her stuff. I mean, Ryan Johnson has openly said that that she consulted heavily on the writing of the film, and so to have her stamp all over it is just so freaking cool. And uh, yeah, I think everyone in the film is is feeling it, and it's going to be a mixed experience. It's going to be fun, but it's going to be dark, and it's going to be sad, and um, you know, and that's and that's Star Wars. And so um, I would love if you wanted to post movie maybe uh, after the end of the uh, after the end of the year beginning of the new year if you wanted to come back on and, and, and talk about it i'm sure there'll be tons to talk about i would really enjoy that yes so where can people find you and your podcast people can find me at i rebel destiny oh sorry people can find me by searching out i rebel a star wars destiny podcast which you can find on facebook you can find the podcast itself on itunes google play Basically, anywhere where you can find a podcast. If you would like to contact me, you can send me an email at irebeldestiny at gmail.com. Or you can contact me through the irebel Facebook page. Awesome. Well, I just want to reiterate that I had an absolute blast on your show. And I think you're doing, you're doing great, great stuff. And uh, I will be listening to all the episodes. So I know you're editing one right now. So good luck. And I, I look forward to hearing it like all of them. I am looking forward to getting it out. It's a lot of fun, and I love creating content and podcasting. I'm still collecting myself over the emotional discussion of Leia. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm the same way. Princess Leia is still the best for me. I mean, I she's just she's the best. I, she's and and you add Carrie Fisher. I mean, it's yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. So we will table that for now. I uh, we're both very excited. Thank you again, Jedi Geek Girl. Uh, the Bizzlecast thanks you. We look forward to having you back on soon. And people, thank you. And we are out. All right. Thank you. That was great. I kept it to a decent yeah. length. So sorry to make yeah. you cry there at the end. Woo. No, no, yeah. no. I I, I worked myself up. <laughs> <laughs>